Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, can somebody please just tell this guy how to get to Shell Beach? This is Dark City. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Blast Zone. Welcome to The Blast Zone. We are not a podcast about bad movies. We are a podcast about movies that did badly. That's right. I am John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies. Movies like Dark City, which we'll be talking about today. But before we get into that, how are you doing today, Ian? Let me tell you a little story. Three years ago, I got a new car. Today, I got that car serviced for the first time. Hmm. I hope that's how cars work, that you can just check on them every few years and look under the hood and be like, is it still going? They gave it back to me and they said, yeah, it's all still there. So yeah, I'm lubed up. I'm pumped up. I'm tuned up. I'm all the bad metaphors for being ready to go tonight. I feel like you treat your car like a character in an action movie. When he has to go on the run, they always have a car that's under like a tarp somewhere in a parking (laughs) garage. And it's always like an old muscle car. They take the tarp (laughs) off, they sit in it and you can feel them like caressing the steering wheel and (laughs) turn the key. And it's like, but some, something tells me that's not your car. No, mine is a cute little subcompact SUV. That works too. A little Hyundai. Less conspicuous if you're on the run from the government or bad guys or... I mean, don't get me wrong. I still keep it in a barn covered in an old tarp, but... <laughs> but then how do you get to it? That's another problem with those scenarios. I take a bus to the barn. I thought I was having a good day until an hour ago. I went to the gym and there's a grocery store right next door and I have the same routine. I leave the gym and I go to the grocery store and I get a protein shake, prepackaged one. Nice. And I go to self-checkout and I usually still have my headphones in. I'm listening to my music, carry over from the gym. And I did that today and I got into the parking lot and I felt a little hand on my shoulder. And so I turned around and somebody said, oh, you, you didn't pay for that. And I said, I surely did. I got a receipt, but I threw it out. You know, they have a garbage can in the little vestibule when you're leaving. Oh, where damn. All the, uh, carts are. And I was like, yeah, I paid for it. And she's like, oh, it, the machine saying it didn't go through. I'm like, well, then how did I get a receipt? So it was very embarrassing. Oh, I had to walk damn. back inside with her. Yeah. She had to check the log and she said something about it's not resolved or something. So she called a supervisor and the supervisor's like, oh yeah, it did go through. It's a problem with the computer. So you just have to hit clear and it'll go away. And she was like, she apologized and everything. But like, this is the town I live in. There's a bunch of people in the store. Saw all this. It was very embarrassing. So I'm never going to that store again. Oh, damn. Upset. That yeah, sucks. That's terrible. In, that's your store right by the gym. You can't leave that store. Yeah, I know. I don't have to get in my car. I just walk next door. Luckily, there's another better grocery store like half a mile away. So if I really need something after the gym, I can just drive there. But still, it's putting quite a damper. I'll probably have to find a new gym soon because of this. <laughs> this has ruined me in the shopping center. You didn't re-rack your weights, sir. You're under arrest. I would never do that. I always <laughs> re-rack my weights. I'm a gentleman. Yeah, so that's how my night's going. That's a bad start to the night. I'm sorry to hear that. Now the place is tainted. Sucks. Yeah, through no fault of my own. Anyway, did you watch anything this week you wanted to uh, tell the listeners about? We talk about having bad weeks. And when I have a bad week, I reach into the old basket of Miyazaki movies. And I went back there this week. I watched Kiki's Delivery Service from back in 1989. I'd never seen it before. You know, this week's bomb is about being stuck in a city, unable to get to the beach. And the movie I watched is about how even after you move to a nice new city by the beach, life can still be a struggle. And that's what happens to the little girl in this movie. This is a very safe, straight ahead story about a 13 year old girl who moves to the big city to find herself and launch a career. And you're like, what? Why would a 13 year old girl move to the big city? With what resources? <laughs> well, the thing is, she's a witch. And that's what witches do in this uh, world. And it's just this really sweet movie. It's actually a little more child oriented, you could say, maybe child 
specific than the other Ghibli classics, which are also all generally appropriate for kids, but have some spookier themes in them. This is just like a girl moves to the city, figures out her life kind of thing, finds romance, finds work. It's a lot about work. She's a hustler. It's kind of cool. <laughs> it's like a precursor to licorice pizza about like children it, it who are just trying to make, make a living. <laughs> it's absolutely that. So it's not as thrilling as some of the other ones or as spooky or enchanting, but it's solid. It's a good time. And as usual, if you need to get away from things, trust Miyazaki to take you somewhere. I got to just breeze through the whole catalog with my kids one week because yeah. who knows if they're going to be available on HBO Max for much longer. Oh, if right. HBO Max is going to be a thing a year from now, it might be gone. So Could be all reality competitions and shark weeks. And I, I like some of the discovery content, but it's certainly different than what you get with HBO Max. Yeah. Like, so I hope that doesn't happen, but yeah. it puts a clock on all this stuff that's available on HBO Max right now. So I'm going to try to check that out soon. I struggle sometimes. The listeners may catch on that. There are some weeks where I just haven't watched anything that's not for the podcast. And I'm like, shit, yeah. what now? But I have too many things to choose from this week, too many new releases that are oh. part of the cultural conversation at the moment. So I had to pick between talking about Prey or Elvis, which are both movies getting a lot of traction on social media and yeah. Letterboxd. Elvis is now available for streaming after being theatrical only for a long time. And Prey was a streaming only release. But I'm going to talk about Elvis a little bit because, okay. man, what a wild dude Baz Luhrmann is. I feel like he watched Walk Hard and was like, it's good, but it's a little too realistic, a little too grounded. <laughs> I feel like they could have injected some more silliness into the proceedings. He's like, oh yeah, I can top that. I never realized how much of Elvis's story, if we want to take what happens in the movie Elvis as what truly happened, but how closely it mirrors the story of Dewey Cox. It's one-to-one -one in a lot of situations. Wow, okay. Which is interesting because Walk Hard was a skewering of the biopic genre, not of musicians in general. I know Kurt Russell had a TV movie where he was Elvis, right? Back Very in the early 80s. on, yeah. But that wasn't as big of a cultural touch point as it needed to be to really get referenced in Walk Hard. Walk Hard was clearly riffing on Walk the Line and Ray yeah. and that kind of newer generation of music biopics, for but sure. it still manages to hit every note of Elvis's story beat for beat. It's super impressive. But overall, I think I like the movie if you can take it for what it is, which is it's entertainment. It's yeah. not meant to be a real true telling of the Elvis story. It made me want a little bit more of a sober look at Elvis's life because I do think it's interesting. It brings up some stuff that I would like it to delve into a little bit more, but no, it needed to spend 60% of the movie on Tom Hanks in a fat suit doing the worst fucking accent I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> what are we going to admit as a society that Tom Hanks can't do accents? Think of a good accent he's done in a movie. I just assumed he could. It's like the uncle that you love and he does this embarrassing thing and you forget about it. And then every Thanksgiving when you see him, you're like, oh my God, I forgot. Uncle Tom does that thing. And uh, yeah, his thing is accents. Forrest Gump, The Lady Killers. Every time he does an accent, I feel like it brings his performance down a little bit. The Forrest Gump accents become iconic because it's so distinct, but it's bad. It's not a good Southern accent. Also, Colonel Tom Parker didn't fucking sound like that. That's the weirdest I say you a YouTube interview with him and he has some words and lines that he clearly has a little bit of a Dutch intonation in it, but he mostly sounds like a Southern guy. Totally. So it's very subtle. What was he, what was he doing there? And Hanks is absolutely not subtle. He went full gold member with it, which is just a really weird choice for a serious role. I was really hoping that Elvis was like a bomb so we could talk about it in more depth, but no, it made $250 million. I'm kind of surprised. And it did not have a John Carter budget. Yeah, I was surprised too, because you know what? A movie like that relies on getting people of a certain age in the theater, and they had largely been staying away from the theaters for obvious reasons, concerns over health and COVID and whatnot. I don't think young people were going to see the Elvis movie, so it was a pretty big gamble. And Boz, back in the day when he was doing Romeo and Juliet, could cross over, and he 
pulled not just old Shakespeare fans. He's like, okay, let me make this young, but he's not young anymore. So his shtick is now also an old people musical shtick. So it's like old people subject and old people style. I mean, sorry, Boz, to call your style old people style. It has a lot of vitality still. Not saying he's dried up. Oh, it's very frenetic. It's very vibrant. Movie moves at a thousand miles an hour. Yeah. And Austin Butler is great. And I feel like his performance generated a strong word of mouth for the movie and yeah. maybe got some younger people to go see it because he's a youngish man. I think he's 30. That makes plays sense. plays all the different parts of his life very well. But now that the movie is more widely available, we're seeing the great mummification of Elvis, which I'm enjoying quite a bit. There's the famous clip where Cody Smith McPhee reveals that Elvis is indeed white and Tom Hanks loses it. So he's dollar signs <laughs> in his eyes practically. And that's being used in a lot of funny ways on Twitter. I'm enjoying that. That's the part of movies we like the best. Memes. Memes. So Ian, uh, let's talk about Dark City a little bit. I've given my thoughts on this movie at the end of the last episode. And I think I've brought it up a couple times over the year-ish we've been doing last uh-huh. time. Year and a half almost. It's come up. I'm a big fan of it, but I also hadn't watched it too recently. So my opinion of it may have changed slightly. But what did you know about this movie coming into recording this? I thought I was watching it fresh. And then I watched it. And I'm like, I did watch this before. Maybe even twice. Someone erased it from my memory. Oh, boy. And that was Jack Bauer. No, it was mm. a very strange experience because literally I did think that I hadn't watched it. I knew I had started it, as I do with a lot of things. One of my things I do is start movies that I don't finish. You could literally start a second podcast called Ian's 20-Minute Movie, <laughs> yeah. and you just review the first 20 minutes of a movie. <laughs> That's an awesome idea. I would be so good at that. <laughs> I'll support you in any way I can if you want to <laughs> split your time. But yeah, I had the feeling, which is very true to the movie, of this is familiar, but yet I can't figure out how to get all the way there to the end. It'll come up as we go through the story of the movie. But the most likely scenario is I did fall asleep sometime an hour through the movie because after that point, everything seemed new to me. So I'm calling it a fresh watch, a movie that I was aware of, maybe was scared of. That's my default assumption with the movie that has this kind of creepy look with a lot of shadows and some creepy bald dudes. And so I was sufficiently scared off until now. That's an interesting thing about this movie. Is it a horror movie or is it a sci-fi movie? Do you find the movie scary or do you find it creepy? Because I don't really find it scary. I don't now. Once you're comfortable with the fact that it's really a noir mystery with sci-fi elements, you kind of lose the fear that it's going to go straight horror on you. But I get that you could be scared by it because the strangers are pretty scary coming out of elevators and coming down hallways. Especially the fucking kid ones. Like Kid's scary. Yeah. The little, it's actually two kids. It was twins, a brother and sister that played the same oh. little creepy kid. Because kids have different rules about how long you can film and right. be on set and everything. So I think they use that kind of like a Mary Kate and Ashley on Full House situation. So yeah, there was a group of twins playing the creepy little strangers. Stranger danger. This time the kids are the ones that are the danger. Whoa, they flipped it. They flipped it on us. But yeah, I did not see this in theaters. I think I was 11 when this movie came out. So I was okay. way too young to go to the theater to see this, even though it is PG-13. So it's not like I was too far off. Just like I was not buying what this movie was selling at 11 years old. And I don't no. think I, I could be faulted for that. It was years later. It became a bit of a cult classic, which we'll get into in more depth. There were some real heavy hitters in the movie industry that were touting it as masterpiece, best movie of 1998. Roger Ebert was a huge fan of this movie. Kind of feeling that cultural cachet build up over time when the DVD was out. I went and got it and watched it and I loved it. And then the Blu-ray came out and I bought that, watched it, and I loved it. And then just run out of time. Like I didn't get to rewatch it often. It was a movie I always recommended to people when they were looking for a sci-fi movie maybe they hadn't seen. And I still would for the record. But watching it now, it lost a little bit of its magic maybe. Part of that may just be that there have been some really high profile movies that came out after this one that kind of borrow liberally from it. Not that this movie didn't borrow. It certainly wears its influences on its sleeves also. The Matrix came out a year later and takes a lot of cues from this movie. It took a lot of props from this movie. Uh, they were filmed on the same lot. Yeah, and they took they took a lot of stuff. Can we borrow your rooftop? Yeah, we're just going to do 
some flips over here. And if you've got any patent leather and buckles, we'll take those too. Are there Wachowskis Australian? I didn't know that. They filmed The Matrix in Australia. Maybe they're not from Australia, but they just filmed it there for budgetary reasons because they had yeah. all this vaguely gothic architecture laying around from Dark City and needed to make good Raining. on it. But yeah, the stories kind of parallel each other very closely. Uh, and I think Dark City kind of got lost to time. There might be some other factors that go into why it didn't quite succeed like they wanted. What you said about it kind of hits home with me is that the enjoyment of this movie, it's very ephemeral. You have to turn off the lights, turn up the biggest TV you got and try to get into this thing because it, it's shifty. It's dark. It's mysterious. There's a lot of really fun stuff to enjoy in it. But also if you get distracted at all, or if you just like not feeling that vibe at the moment, it can kind of float away on you and you're just kind of watching weird shit go by. It takes concentration to get into it and really suck the joy out of it. For sure. It's a very cerebral type of sci-fi movie. It is muted. There's not a ton of big action set pieces in it. I mean, they made it on 27 million dollars and I think all of that went to the set design because yeah. you know there is some cool special effects in this movie but there are some moments where the special effects do drag it down to some degree because they're not quite as polished as they could have been it's very interesting because I was looking through our notes and I'm like wait a minute this is kind of a sci-fi special effects movie there's all these vistas of the city there's creepy villains who float around they have glowing aliens inside their brains yet none of the stuff that we queued up to talk about was very much the look or the action of the movie because it's really a cerebral movie. It's really about decoding a mystery and getting back your childhood and the murder mystery stuff of it. And the fact that it's a sci-fi movie kind of slides by. We're calling it a noir and a sci-fi movie and a mystery, but it's also very much a romance that takes center stage for a lot of this movie. And I honestly think it does the romance angle pretty well, even though you come to understand pretty early on that whatever connection these characters have is manufactured, you start to buy into it as the movie goes on. That could just be the charisma of the actors involved or the writing, but the movie really kind of plants its flag on the story between these two characters. It ends with it and it takes center stage for the last half of the movie, really. We'll have to talk about that. And you and I might have been impacted by that to different extents, but we'll talk about why and how. You son of a bitch. (laughs) All right, let me get into the making of this movie. Do you want to hear a little bit about it? Let's hear how this thing happened. Alex Proyas' movie career did not get off to a smooth start. A prolific music video director, Proyas broke into feature film work with low-budget post-apocalyptic sci-fi project, Spirit of the Air, Gremlins of the Clouds. Length of the title, downfall of the movie. The movie wasn't exactly a hit, but it did land him a more high-profile project, an adaptation of a popular caliber comic series called The Crow, where the title role would be played by actor and martial artist Brandon Lee, son of the legendary Bruce Lee. Brandon Lee would die tragically on March 31st, 1993 while filming the movie due to an accident involving a prop gun that had not been properly checked and cleaned. Proyas was deeply affected by Lee's death, returning to Australia while production was shut down. He would eventually finish the movie as Lee's role was almost entirely filmed when the accident occurred, and the movie would go on to be a surprise hit, making $94 million on a $23 million budget and spawning several sequels and spinoffs. Proyas started conceptual work on his follow-up film almost immediately, asking production designer Patrick Totopoulos to begin drawing concept art for what would become Dark City. He would work on the screenplay about a mysterious group of sharp-dressed strangers who appear to be manipulating people and reshaping their reality, along with Lem Dobbs and David S. Goyer, and the film would become something of a hot commodity with many studios interested in the project. Every studio crazy about a sharp-dressed creep. 
It would take some time to settle on a studio, though, as Price had a very specific vision for the film and was steadfast that he'd be allowed to make his version of the movie. He would eventually agree to a joint production agreement between New Line Cinema and Proyas' own production company, Mystery Clock Studios, and it was time to begin casting the film. Rufus Sewell was cast in the main role of John Murdoch, with Proyas explaining that while he was familiar with Sewell's work, he was aware most audience members wouldn't be and thought that would be valuable in mirroring how little Sewell's character knows about himself. Jennifer Connelly was cast as his quote-unquote wife, while William Hurt was asked to play Dr. Schrieber. Hurt would turn down the Schrieber role, which would eventually go to Kiefer Sutherland, and would instead play even-keeled inspector Frank Bumstead, a decent guy who doesn't do anything creepy. Sadly so rare in Hollywood these days. With a $27 million budget, the film was shot almost entirely on set to mirror the artificial nature of the city, mostly at Fox Studios Australia. Filming would wrap up in the summer of 1997, and a release date of February 27, 1998 was set. That's right, they released the movie in Dumpuary. It would receive overwhelmingly positive reviews, with Roger Ebert calling it the best movie of 1998, but audiences were less enthused as it debuted at fourth place its opening weekend and only went downhill from there. Eventually earning $27.2 million at the worldwide box office, Dark City would leave theaters a box office bomb, but has continued to enjoy a cult favorite status and has grown in estimation throughout the years. There you have it. It was pretty much waylaid by Titanic, like a lot of movies around that time were. It's opening weekend, Titanic pulled $20 million in its 11th week of release. Oh, damn. Titanic made $17.6 million the next week. So it was dominating the box office for the foreseeable future, especially being February. Reminder that the studio thought Titanic was going to be a disaster for them. Yeah, that's not even one of those juggernauts that you can get out of the way of because nobody thought Titanic would do anything. And yet they right. still got stomped by it. Yeah, a lot of movies got stomped by it. We could do a whole like special month or two about good movies that just got waylaid by Titanic. Sunk by the Titanic. U.S. Marshals, the sequel to The Fugitive that no one remembers ever happened. Oh yeah, I didn't remember that. With Wesley Snipes. I kind of like that movie, but I haven't seen it in decades. It used to be on HBO all the time. I'm adding it to the schedule right now. Yeah, this movie is, it's cool. I could say that about it. Let's start off with the general impressions. I think we both- I can't believe you're going to shit on this movie in (laughs) front of me to my face. (laughs) I have a lot of good things to say about this movie, but I'm saying why I think it didn't succeed at the box office besides Titanic rolling over it, is that, as I said, it's a little... What's the word I'm looking for? It's hard to grasp onto its joys. Esoteric? Yeah. It's also kind of not that pleasant. You're in this no. dark, claustrophobic world, and you're basically trapped in an anxiety dream where everything's frustrating and you can't get to where you're trying to go and nobody can help you and everyone's acting dumb. And like, it's great that Proyas was able to create this atmosphere because that's what he was going for. But it makes for a tense movie. It doesn't have the release of, say, The Matrix, which just had this glorious action that blew off that steam. This one doesn't really blow off the steam. It keeps ramping it up on you. Yeah, there's not as much catharsis here as there was in The Matrix. Without spoiling anything, the hero does win in the end. He gets his big victory and he kind of gets to live his life the way he wants. I feel like the end is where you see some of the budgetary restrictions, maybe, because the victory is a little more muted, a little more... It's crazy to say smaller scale, considering what happens at the end of this movie, which we'll get into, of course, in more detail. But yeah, I see your point. Describing it as feeling like you're trapped in an anxiety dream is very apt. But like you said, I, I can't fault the movie for that because that's what it wants you to feel. I understand not wanting to spend too much time in that world. You definitely don't finish this movie feeling like rejuvenated. No. Oh, yeah, like, I'm going to go for a walk. You just kind of got to sit there and ponder for a while. Yeah, you're not really pumping your fist. No. And it's yet, yeah, it's got this one explosion of satisfying action towards the end. But like you said, it gets really small immediately after the action's on. It's like, let's go walk on the pier quietly. So like you don't leave on the big emotion. And also it starts out, it's a mystery, which we love. We like noir movies 
mysteries. We like mysteries that are complex and interesting and fun to unravel, but it spends a lot of time just doing exposition. There's not that much action in the first third of it. It's really just characters getting together and going over the state of things. And the hero is just kind of watching how stuff works and figuring it out. I liked all that though. I feel like the movie's really succeeding when you kind of feel characters bumping up at the upper limits of what they're willing to accept about their reality. You know, I feel like William Hurt does a really good job of that in this movie. Like you can feel at some point he realizes that everything he's being told by Murdoch and by the previous detective on the case, Walensky, everything of course is in quotes because none of this actually happened. Like he he knows what they're saying is true, but he just can't accept it. And all that is there's good acting there. It's good writing. And that's the part I found most satisfying when it gets into the guts of the city and the big clock and the crazy little bald guys. That's when the movie is still good, but it's good in another way that maybe appeals to me less. Totally. We're about the character work, which is a good sign. That's all cool stuff about this movie. So I keep talking in this mode like I'm about to shit on the movie. I'm really not. There's one main thing that I think is a problem with the movie, but it wasn't a problem with me enjoying it. It was just an opportunity that I think was missed. Other than that, it's a cool movie. I liked it. Don't get me wrong. All right. Why don't you tell us the story of this movie? Because it is twisty and turny and uh, we're going to want to catch people up on it so they have some idea what the fuck we're talking about. Let me try to do this justice. So a guy wakes up in a dark city, in a dark hotel room, in a bathtub with no memory of who he is. He finds a dead prostitute in his room and he gets the hell out of there. Then the guy finds his wallet and figures out his name is John Murdoch. Murdoch, played by Rufus Sewell, is being pursued by some bald creeps in trench coats called the Strangers. Using a magic power called tuning, which he didn't know he had, Murdoch escapes from the clutches of the Strangers, killing one of them with a blow to the head, which reveals the glowing blue alien creature living inside its skull. Meanwhile, Murdoch's wife Emma, played by Jennifer Connelly, meets with Dr. Schrieber, played by Kiefer Sutherland, who tells her that John has had a psychotic break. Then she meets with Inspector Bumstead, played by William Hurt, who says John may be the serial killer that the cops are looking for. Then John drops in on Emma at home and says that while he doesn't remember her or anything else about his life, he swears he's not a murderer. Pretty good opening there. Now, we do have to, for clarity's sake, if you watch the theatrical version of this movie, the movie opens with a extended voiceover from Kiefer Sutherland's character. Right. Dr. Schrieber, which basically explains the entire plot of the movie and is really stupid and bad. bad uh, Alex Proyas absolutely hated that. Did not have final cut, I guess, because the studio forced his hand to put it in the beginning of the movie. Essentially, the same speech is given towards the end of the movie where it fits much better. I think most copies of the movie now are the director's cut, just so you're... Thankfully, that's the version that we got to watch. And it's nicely spooky. You almost notice the silence in the beginning. There's a shot of the sky and a slow tilt down to the city. And then you see Kiefer Sutherland and he's just standing there and limping around and mugging up, but he's not saying anything. And you're like, there's a bunch of weird shit in this movie. I wonder what it all is. And that's kind of the fun of it. And the first act of this movie is starting to unlock those secrets slowly. There's a lot of subtle hints to what the nature of this place is. And I understand why Price was furious at them forcing him to include this voiceover because it ruins it. Like It was too much. It really does. Yeah, you pointed it out to me on YouTube. So we both got to see what that version was like. And even if you were doing that voiceover, like hold a couple things back, edit that down, take out two or three lines and leave some mystery. But like he just spells it out from A to Z and you're like, okay, now I have to watch an hour and 45 minutes of movie just illustrating the thing you already explained to me. It's like, you could have let me figure 
figure it out when you showed it to me. Thumbs down to the voiceover, but thumbs up to the director's cut version, which we watched, which doesn't have it. Yeah, it works much better as a movie. Really like the score. The score is very dramatic. It kind of matches the architecture of the city, which is very gothic in nature, I would say. Gave me some Burton's Gotham vibes. That slightly fake, slightly cartoony, eclectic architecture mashing up different styles. And it's all part of the vibe. The movie has a real mood. And like you said, the score is a great part of that too. Everything's dark and spooky and creepy and cool. And then we open on a terrible looking hotel room. Just a horrible looking place to spend any amount of time. It's uh, just green tile. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes. Green tile everywhere. Creepy ass bathroom. There's a milky bathtub. John Murdoch is passed out in a bathtub. That doesn't look like the kind of bath you take to get clean. They put some milky purple stuff in the bath water. I guess Dr. Schreiber was like, you might as well moisturize while I'm wiping your memories. But yeah, it's fun. The beginning, that scene is creepy. The lamp is swinging. The shadows are swaying. It felt to me like the beginning of a survival horror video game where you start in an empty room and you're like naked and you have to go to the shelves and find things and equip yourself. And that's exactly what he does. He goes around picking up shoes and putting them on and stuff. That's very accurate. It is like the beginning of a video game. He go on a shelf and like, oh, there's a goldfish here. And it's like, pick up goldfish, put in bathtub. <laughs> what did the goldfish mean? It focuses too long on a goldfish that has no connection to the rest of the story that it must be a symbol, right? I assumed it worked on a couple levels. One, a goldfish is a pet you keep in an aquarium and observe it from a distance, which could be a good comparison for the strangers, what they're doing to us. They right. basically put us in a terrarium and are checking our behavior. And also goldfish have famously short memories, uh, yes. which is another way that could tie into the theme of the movie where everyone's memory gets wiped at midnight every day. It also has a little practical story point too, is that Inspector Bumstead comes to this hotel and says, I see that there's a dead prostitute in the room and the guy who was in here with her is John Murdoch, but is he really the killer? Because he saved a goldfish, so he can't be all bad. He just probably didn't want them to charge his credit card for incidentals for leaving a goldfish dying on the floor. Although the cleaning service probably wasn't thrilled with having to take it out of the bathtub either. They probably weren't happy about the dead lady with spirals of blood on her chest. Probably not. So let's talk about Rufus, good old Rufus Sewell. He was not a big actor when this movie came out. I wouldn't call him a big actor now either, but he's certainly a face you recognize. This was kind of his breakout role, but me and you were kind of talking about him today a little bit and you had maybe some feedback you'd like to give the casting director of this movie. <laughs> Rufus Sewell, he's actually quite good in this, but I just think he's wrong. He looks like the lead singer of an 80s new wave band stuck in a tripped out music video. Golden Earring's Twilight Zone would be perfect. They could have played that whole song throughout this movie. Would have been great, but he's got this vibe. Got some David Byrne vibes. Colin Hay from Men at Work, if anybody remembers that far back, but... I've seen Men at Work live oh, recently. Oh, damn. Nice. <laughs> They're still going. They opened for the Bare Naked Ladies. It might have just been Colin Hay and a bunch of dudes, Okay, but he was there. That's cool. But yeah, it seems like in the 80s, during that new wave era, anxiety dream videos were like a thing. I was always seeing lead singers running around and mugging at the camera like, help, I can't get out of here. And Rufus Sewell plays that great. And I liked him, but I couldn't help but imagine what if you had cast a conventional Hollywood leading man in this role who just had more charisma, more warmth, more charm. It would have been a very different movie because a lot of it is mm -hmm. left up to his vibe. And he is such a cool character that you feel kind of on the outside. And I get it. Like you had those quotes of Proya saying he liked that about him. You don't know him. He's weird. He's spooky himself. And that really works for the spookiness of the movie. But I don't know. I didn't want to get that close to him. You're kind of like, oh, this guy's kind of weird. Even if he didn't kill these prostitutes, he's just not that fun to be around. <laughs> I think it, it is fair. I think if the movie was trying to play with us a little more than it is into being like, is he actually a killer? Did he really do these things? I think Rufus Sewell's a good decision because there's a darkness to him. He's made kind of a career playing villains or at least morally gray characters for a reason. He excels at it. But the movie is pretty clear early 
early on, and this may be colored by the fact that I've seen this movie a bunch of times already, but like you almost don't suspect him from pretty early on in the movie. You're aware that he's being manipulated in some way. Right. So that undercuts the idea of casting this guy who has a darkness to him to maybe, I saw it as maybe trying to throw off the audience and leave them guessing, but then the movie doesn't really follow through on that. And you're pretty certain that he's innocent within 10 minutes. I couldn't help but thinking if this movie got made in a couple of years later, you'd have somebody like Clive Owen in that role. Yes. Uh, but also let's talk about his haircut. He's rocking a curly mullet. If only he knew in 2022, that would be the most popular hairstyle for Gen Z hipsters. He'd be the coolest cat on the block. It's pretty Swayze. Yeah. It's a thing. It's maybe not as feathered as Swayze. Like it's curlier than Swayze. It's though. a little curlier. Yeah. Maybe that's what also kept me at a distance from him was the hair. I don't know. It's <laughs> not my, It's not my style. You said new wave singer. That's totally the vibe with that haircut too. Like Flock of Seagulls. Definitely. I had this observation about this phenomenon, which I'll try to get it all out now so I don't keep beating this horse. But in a novel, if, if this was a noir novel, you're inside the protagonist's head. So we naturally empathize with the hero's desires, their frustrations, even if that character is a little bit creepy or off-putting to others because we're hearing their experience and it's empathetic by its nature. But in a movie, since you can't get in their head so much, the hero needs to have this innate kind of attractiveness, which I think we sometimes poo-poo as like a Hollywood cheesy thing, but there's like a real reason for it. You have to want to get inside that character's head or you have to find them so naturally appealing that you imagine yourself in their head anyway and you ascribe empathetic thoughts, even if those thoughts are never directly expressed just by looking at the face of a Ryan Gosling or a Harrison Ford. I was imagining back in the day, if you would put Harrison Ford in this role or Bruce Willis or Brad Pitt or somebody that just really had charisma, it would be a really different movie because you'd feel so much more interest in seeing this character succeed, both the, the love story, the injustice of the criminal investigation, the danger of the alien threat, like all those things. I wasn't as attached to seeing him conquer those things because it was Rufus Sewell. And I'm like, this guy's going to just say, fuck it anyway. Like, I don't know what he's going to do, even if he wins. No, I, I take your, not criticism of Sewell, but questioning his viability as a leading man for this type of movie. But I think that kind of, you said, may have sunk the movie's mass appeal, but I think it strengthened its cult appeal because it's not like yeah. an A-lister in that lead role. It's this weird little movie that got made with this guy in the title role. And he's gone on to have a very successful career, but he's not top-lining a lot of big-budget Hollywood movies, or mid-budget in this case. It, fe it feels like a swing and a miss in a commercial sense, but we don't care. We didn't have a financial stake in this movie. It's 25 years later. Who fuck cares? It just adds to like the otherness of it. For its cult enjoyability, that can be your weird little guy. That's my guy, Rufus Sewell. John Murdoch. The gorillas named one of their members after him or after the philosopher. I don't know. There's no oh, way okay. to be sure. But let's talk about another thing I like about this movie, unless you want to shit talk Rufus. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're being very fair. Is there are some subtle and not so subtle hints to the nature of the reality that I really like how they're presented. There's a front desk clerk that has a antagonistic conversation with Murdoch when he's leaving the hotel about how he's kicked out because he didn't pay. But then later when the cops come, it's another actor, another person who is giving the exact same spiel to the cops and recounting the conversation he had with Murdoch, which is interesting because, you know, we saw that guy and that's not him. It's like, oh, wait, something's going on here. I like this. I thought that was a really effective way to parcel out information. Yeah, those touches were cool. You see that actors appear in different places as new people, essentially, as they get reinvented by the strangers. It's a, definitely a cool, smart part of the movie. Also, I brought this up to you as a joke, how fucking mean and scary the sun looks. There's postcards for Shell Beach and billboards for it. And the sun like looks evil. We're going to put a picture in the show notes. I'm going to juxtapose it with the sun from Super Mario Brothers 3 that okay. chases you around because they look very similar. But then I realized the strangers designed this world. They probably don't like the sun. That's another little subtle hint that the night is never ending here. You're never going to get to see the sun because they view it as something to be feared and hated. Yeah. They present it that way to the people. To them, that's like a horror movie poster. So they, for some reason, put these Shell Beach billboards and posters around and postcards. It's got the ocean 
mansion. It's got the beach on it and it's got a creepy cartoon sun. Their graphic designer is like, fuck, I'm going to make this fucking scary because it scares the shit out of me. You wonder if they even meant to make it scary, if that's just like they drew it as they perceived it. Shell Beach is, that's one of the fun takeaways of this movie. And you referenced it in the very opening. This movie is really about trying to get to Shell Beach. And you're like, what the fuck is Shell Beach? But by the end, you're obsessed with it as Murdoch is. Yeah, we're kind of giving up the ghost here with spoiling the plot of the movie, but Shell Beach isn't real. The strangers clearly concocted it. I feel like they needed to give people something outside the walls of the city to like aspire to, or else they'd feel like lab rats in a maze. They had to indicate to them that there was more than this without actually providing it, which is what Shell Beach kind of does. It's aspirational in a sense, and people need goals and aspirations or else they'll go crazy, and that would ruin their little experiment. So that answers like the why even create this thing that doesn't exist for the mental well-being of the subjects. And Murdoch turns that on him and he's like, look, I'm not satisfied with fuzzy, hazy childhood memories. I'm not some kind of Blade Runner. I need the real thing. I need to actually go to Shell Beach. And that's when things start unraveling. That's his goal. Let's talk about the strangers. We've hinted at them, but they're pretty creepy. Yeah. They look like Slendermen. They're creepy as hell. (laughs) Super well designed. (laughs) So simple, but it works. It's funny how easy it is to make creepy characters. Like, okay, they're going to be pale. They're going to be bald. They're going to have trench coats pulled up to their necks and they're going to wear fedoras and they're just going to scare the shit out of you. And they do. They actually made a bunch of suits for Willem Dafoe in the Boondock Saints with buttons (laughs) that go all the way up to the neck. So Alex Perez just borrowed those from Troy Duffy for this movie because as we all know, Willem Dafoe's buttons go to the fucking ceiling. They go to the moon, man. And yeah, these guys are buttoned up. They're scary. That first thing when he's popping out of his hotel room and he looks down the hallway and he sees their faces in the elevator window, that was genuinely freaky. There's no jump scares in this movie, really. That's the closest it came, I think. I resent the fact that you said that they're scary because they're bald. Uh, It was a little hurtful. I didn't know that made me scary. (laughs) You don't have any of those other scary qualities, but it's a warning. Don't go down that road. You're one step down that road. (laughs) So don't let yourself start wearing trench coats. God, it's been a fucking hundred degrees every day. I can't even imagine (laughs) putting on a trench coat. Same here. What makes sense to talk about next? Do we meet Dr. Schreiber before we meet Emma or do we meet Emma first? We meet everybody real fast. That's one of the fun things about this first section of the movie. A lot happens in a short span. Everybody meets everybody else and starts talking. Yeah. Emma played by Jennifer Connelly in 1998. What do you say about Jennifer Connelly? She's a great actress, one of our finest. She's yeah. an Oscar winner and also Auga, if you'll allow me. I will. To be a horn dog <laughs> for a moment. She's very good in this movie. You didn't like her performances, her musical performances. Her songs. She's not actually singing the songs. Okay. It could have been though. Like, Yeah, like it's not out of reach. The vocal delivery of the songs is pretty flat, pretty muted. Yeah, it's low key. She's not belting out big songs. It's just these quiet little songs. And partly for that reason, I'm like, okay, wait, what is the point of these songs? What do we learn about her by the fact that she shows up in a nightclub and sings these very mellow little songs? They're kind of bland was the nicest thing I could say about them. I might be overly generous, but I do think there's a thematic reason for the flatness of the performances. I don't mean flat in terms of the notes she's hitting, flat in terms of the energy level, because music is a passion. Like people get into it because they like making music, but Uh can these people really have passions because every day you're resetting them? So I think it speaks to what the movie is trying to say in a very cheesy way, you're not going to find out what makes humans by looking in their brain. You can't just make somebody a musician by injecting them with the skill to sing. They have to have a passion for it too. And she lacks it. And that's why she's so bored looking during it. That was kind of how I read it. Oh, that's so much smarter. I love your interpretation of it. And now it makes so much more sense because I thought they were actually trying to sell her as a sexy songstress, but she's really not. She's really kind of a bland limp noodle up on that stage. But it makes a lot more sense when you're like, oh, it's actually the aliens are trying to artificially force these humans to do their art thing so that they can learn about where the human soul lives. And it just kind of doesn't work when you just throw people into it. I think that's a great explanation. It could be off base. Like that's not what Preuss was going for, but he seems to have really carefully 
carefully considered almost every choice in this movie. It's hard to think that it's an accident that the performances came off that way because they absolutely do. You're right in saying like she looks bored. The songs aren't very dynamic. It's certainly not like Jessica Rabbit in the beginning of exactly. <laughs> Who Framed Roger Rabbit where the crowd is like really into it. People clap politely, but no one's going crazy for her, which is kind of unbelievable to me. You're going crazy. I could tell. Jennifer Connelly. Yeah, no, that makes a lot more sense. I like it now. I take back anything bad I said. Sweet. I knew I'd be able to bring you over to the dark side, if you will. Dark side of the city. I think that's a hold steady song. So let's talk about Kiefer. Kiefer is the one person in this movie that just decided he was in a different movie <laughs> and was really going to turn it up to 12 and just be a creepy weirdo throughout the whole thing. Creepier than The Strangers, even. This guy sucks. <laughs> he's, I don't know what to say about him. He's heavy handed. I don't know what to say about him. That's how he talks. Like he's out of breath constantly. He can only talk like one or two words in a clip and then he has to take a pause. I think my comment was Malcolm in the Middle did it better. If you remember the friend on that show, they got good laughs out of that. Dr. Schrieber doesn't play any of these for laughs. It's just kind of annoying to hear. I don't want to mock his disability, whatever that might be, his strange sci-fi character, but he's hard to listen to because he has a lot of exposition and you have to listen to him pant through these long speeches. I wish they'd gone a different direction with it. I think Kiefer Sutherland's a very capable actor, but I just don't think that's his wheelhouse. Even he said he was surprised he got the script for this. He was like, did you mean to send this to my dad? It's is this going to sound too mean if I say like, I don't really buy him as super cerebral characters. <laughs> he strikes me as a blunt instrument. Maybe that's the Jack Bauer and Lost Boys bias. He's not like a mastermind typically. I'm wondering if he's successfully selling the level to which his character is supposed to be gifted because he has some talent. That's why the strangers have singled him out and, and recruited him to help out and not just injecting the memories into humans, but concocting the memories because he knows stuff that the strangers don't know about how to put memories together that work. He describes it like he's just making a paella, a dash of unhappy childhood. And then right. he like puts a little sprinkle of saffron in there or whatever. Salt Bay style. Yeah. Not my favorite character in the movie. And there's only like seven characters that have names in this movie. So yeah, he's hard to take, but the character as it's written is interesting because it's a flawed person. It feels very old school. It feels very Casablanca or something. He's a guy who's helping the enemy, but he's going to actually try to redeem himself and do good. So there's some attractive things about the character and his story, but the surface level stuff, he's got so many affectations between the pan and the scarred eye and the limping. He's just a bundle of quirks. So going from a character I didn't love, or at least a performance I didn't love, the character yeah. is important and he's needed, but I really liked William Hurt in this as Inspector Bumstead. He's engineered to be likable because he's the only guy who like lets his guard down and is human. And William Hurt does a really good job with it. I'm not saying he got a free pass, but he had the likable role. It's also well outside of William Hurt's wheelhouse, as we kind of alluded to in the monologue. He's well known for playing creepy, violent weirdos. R.I.P. William Hurt, by the way, a great actor. But yeah, this is like one of the most level-headed characters I've ever seen him play. He's just like a decent man who's trying his best. He has jokes at his expense. Emma helps Murdoch escape when Bumstead comes to try to arrest him. He's like, just turn yourself in. And she distracts him and Murdoch jumps away. And he's like sighing, nobody ever listens to me. He's got these real comic relief <laughs> moments coming from a guy with that serious aspect that William Hurt that brings gravitas. to But it's fun. And it's nice to have someone like that because you really need a breath of fresh air at points in this movie when everybody is weird. Yeah. And he was originally supposed to play or he was offered the part of Dr. Schrieber, which I think he might have been better than Kiefer in that, but I would have missed him as Bumstead. I think this is a really cool role for him. I I sure hope he doesn't get sucked out of Vortex into space later. Yeah, that would, that suck. would suck. You want me to walk through the middle section of the movie? Yeah, let's hear what happens next. All right. On the run from the cops, Murdoch lurks around the city trying to figure out who the strangers are, why they're after him, and what 
the deal is with Shell Beach, a seaside town he has vague childhood memories of. We learn that every night at midnight, the strangers put everyone to sleep, use the power they call tuning to reshape the city, and with Schreiber's help, they implant new memories into people. The whole city is a big science experiment, but Murdoch is special. He's immune to their powers, and his presence is starting to mess with the strangers' control over reality. So one henchman named Mr. Hand volunteers to be injected with Murdoch's imprinted memories to help track down and defeat him. Still looking for Shell Beach, Murdoch visits his Uncle Carl, who gives him more clues to his fake childhood memories. Meanwhile, Emma and Inspector Bumstead team up as they both start to realize that something is off with their world. They help Murdoch escape a fight with Mr. Hand and the strangers, and now that he's in police custody, Murdoch starts to convince Bumstead and Emma of the dubious nature of their reality. You had a note in this section that I also had a note about. Is it tuning or tuning? (laughs) Some people say tuning. Some people say chewing. And some people say tuning. I think we agree that in reality it is tuning. Yes, like notes from Alex Proyas interviews he's given refer to it as tuning. But maybe he should have been more of an actor's director and corrected their pronunciation on set then because it's fucking confusing. Most of the strangers have English accents, so they're like tuning. He's tuning, mate. He's learning to do the tuning. He's tuning. It's only only Tuesday. It's only Tuesday. Are you sure you should be tuning at this point? And then then we have to go back and crap on Kiefer again because his character has an American accent, but has a weird affectation, and he says tuning for some reason. That's the word he decided to say weird, including in one scene very late with some ADR. His face is not on screen. I swear he tells Murdoch, you have developed the ability to chew. And it's so clear that he says the word (laughs) chew right there. Like, he just said chew. What did you do? And you dubbed that. Like, you could have had him say tune. Yeah, especially in ADR. After the movie's been filmed, you should have an idea now about what words you want to use. I'm usually more sensitive to ADR than you are, but I did not pick up on that specific one. But yeah, the inconsistencies in the pronunciation definitely bothered me. It's also like, no matter which one you go with, it's not a great term for what they're doing. No. I don't know that you really need a term. I feel like the movie does over-explain itself at times, which hurts it. And I think tuning is one of them. Giving it a name, giving it a term, showing the mechanisms of how it works. And another is the physiology of the strangers that we come to find out about in this section of the movie. We also probably didn't need that. Less is more in these situations. Yeah, I saw where Proyas commented on that. that He was concerned with what the strangers were under the skin. And he threw out the idea that they shouldn't just peel off their faces and be bugs. That's too much of a trope. He wanted them to be creatures of light. But they end up being just like bugs of light, I thought. They're like jellyfish. Yeah, they got tentacles. They reminded me of the things from Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. They got very much those vibes from it. Another episode, go back and listen to that one. It's a great one. Like when the movie feels the need to double down on explaining itself, those are its weakest moments. And the tuning and the bug nature of the strangers are both examples of that, I thought. It's funny, it would be totally normal in a straight sci-fi movie. But as we said, this movie feels like noir mystery and a character story. And sometimes it does bug down in the sci-fi details. It's not hard sci-fi though, because it's weird that it takes the time to explain those things. But then like, how do you have this fucking floating city in the middle of space? It, it soft shoes around some other like important aspects to the story and how realistic or feasible it is. And then it feels the need to over explain itself on others. I just feel like just go all in and make a kind of a mysterious movie. You're, you're trusting us to make the leaps in a lot of ways. Have a little more faith in us. I'm with you on that because the mysterious origins are actually some of the most fun part because you're just left to speculate. Like, how did they get these people here? Where did they come from? Those are all kind right. of- Right. Is, is Earth still 
still around somewhere. Or are these actually people who died on Earth? One of the guys says, we use your dead. What does he say? Something like that? Oh, the strangers take the dead as their bodies. Oh, okay. That's what he was referring to. They take dead bodies and inhabit them. So that's what the strangers are. Oh, that's why they're pale and bald because they're cadavers. Right. That makes sense. But then you wonder, were these people taken off Earth? Are these the last people? There's a lot of mysteries there. And I like that. Double down on that. Don't go overboard with the explanations. Then there's a montage I really like where he's frantically trying to get to Shell Beach, gets in a cab. Cab driver doesn't remember how to get there. Oh, you got to take this street. No, wait, is it that street or is it this street? There's road closures. And then like, oh, you take the subway. He gets on the subway and he's watching the little map click off. And he's like, last stop. He's like, oh, but I thought we were going to Shell Beach. Like, no, you need the express for that. And then he gets on the platform and a train flies by. And he's like, why didn't that train stop? He's like, oh, that's the express. Uh, <laughs> it felt like taking the subway in New York City on the weekend. Okay. Sometimes you'll be taking the train to like Brooklyn. We'll be like, and we're going to the Bronx. And the doors close. Ding dong. And somebody comes over the loudspeaker. Like, you're like, I don't know what he said. What am I supposed to do? It's very scary. It really evoked that anxiety. That's like the real anxiety dream part of the movie, this desperate effort to reach Shell Beach that yeah. he can't get there. That was fun. And like you said, it's also kind of comedy. The movie does have a sly sense of humor and it's hard to laugh at a lot of the time because it's also extremely anxiety inducing and dark and spooky at the same time. But once you sort of get to know Alex Proyas and his sense of humor, you're like, okay, the movie is winking at you here. I did want to talk about something that's been discussed around this movie a lot. Maybe not as much as I thought it would be because I was trying to get some more stats on it. But did you feel disoriented by the frequent cuts in the movie? Because this was, at the time of its release, I couldn't tell if it was the shortest average length time in a movie or one of the shortest length times mm. in a movie. Right now, I think the record is taken three, which is a cut every 1.7 seconds. But this had a cut of once every 1.8 seconds about, which is a lot. That's a ton of cuts. I guess I didn't realize it. I haven't seen taken three, but I assume that has a lot of cuts because there's a, you don't have to. <laughs> a lot of fights and explosions. This is not so much that. This movie feels laconic and dark and vibey in its mood a lot of the time. So I'm surprised actually to hear that it set a record for cuts. First of all, I hate the trend of you need a cut every two seconds in an action movie because you want to know where you are physically in the world in an action scene. You want to understand where things and people are relative to each other. And those cuts are kind of like a shortcut. God, I hate using the word cut in that phrase. <laughs> I said the words cut so many times. But it feels like taking a taking liberty. Ah, oh, fuck. I got to say the word cut. It does feel like <laughs> the filmmakers taking a shortcut in the action scenes to get around. Like in Taken 3, a lot of speculation was like, Liam Neeson can't do this stuff anymore. Okay. And this is a way to hide the stunt doubles a little bit or hide right. his age. But here I feel like it's done with a purpose, which is to disorient you much how the characters are. So that it didn't strike me as a problem. But it, like you said, I was kind of shocked after I watched this and I was researching. I was like, huh, I would not have guessed. And then when I rewatched the second time, I was like, okay, this is quite a frenetic pace for editing, but it works. I think it's part of why I felt uncomfortable and maybe hoping to escape to Shell Beach myself. You live not far from the beach, so it's an easier trip for you, but it might take you just as long as it takes John Murdoch if there's traffic. I think I know how to get there, but I'm not sure. And then we get Mr. Hand becomes a main stranger bad guy, stranger danger, if you will. Did you know who played Mr. Hand? Not until you told me. Tell us about Mr. Hand, because this is an interesting part of this casting. It's Richard O'Brien, the writer of the original Rocky Horror Picture Show stage play, and also he played Riff Raff in the movie. He doesn't do a ton of acting, but it was fun to see him. I also did not pick that up right away, okay. but pretty cool to see him in there. And once you know it's him, you could definitely see it. He's Riff Raff, but he's playing much more muted. He's a great villain in this. And I'm like, this guy looks real familiar and he's fun. I liked him. I think you yeah. maybe thought his storyline was more than you needed, but I really liked what that brought to the movie. He got injected with Murdoch's memories and it injected the movie with a kick in the pants of action where it went from the expository explaining everything to now there's a real chase. Now there's a big bad guy. He's got superpowers and he's coming for you and we're on the run. And that made the second half of the film feel more energetic to me. I may 
maybe have softened on Mr. Hand since I wrote my note about, did we really need this subplot? I realized on my rewatch, because I rewatched it this afternoon, right under the wire, what he does is injects the movie with a bad guy because the strangers are the antagonists of the movie because they're doing things to our heroes that they don't want done to them and that we don't want them to do. But they're not like evil. They don't really have any malicious intent. You come to find out they're trying to save their race because their race is dying off and they want to know what humans have that allows them to persevere. Right. So they're studying them in a sense and they're not exactly benevolent, but they're not evil either. But Mr. Hand, when he becomes at least partially human, he kind of becomes like a little mustache twirler, you know? He's, he's a little stinker. Yeah, he's a snidely little villain. And he starts off with a bad pun, which makes you hate him right away. As soon as they eject <laughs> him, I don't know what they even ask him. They didn't even set up his pun. He was so eager to say his pun. He goes, I have John Murdoch in mind. And like, well, we didn't ask you what you had in mind. <laughs> right. It's like when you have a great comeback loaded up, but then somebody says something to you that doesn't cue it up the right way. And you're like, I'm going to say it anyway. Fuck it. But you're right to call out that pun. I did not call it out of my notes, but it's fun though. Like It's, it's the movie silly. being yeah. fun for one of the few times, but then he immediately goes and murders Melissa George, which is too bad because she was very nice in this movie. And uh, her first film role, by the way, Melissa oh, really? George, good actor. She was on The Slap, that famous show. Oh, damn. I didn't realize that. Remember The Slap? I remember hearing about it. I didn't actually try to watch it. I've tried to watch it. It's very hard to find. It's got a lot of good actors in it. Fucking Brian Cox, Melissa George, Lucas Hedges, okay. Marin Ireland, Tandui Newton, Zachary wow. Quinto, Thomas Sadowski, Uma Thurman, Peter Sarsgaard. Wow. Wow. What they got was all this? these people to be in this farce. I think it's actually not a bad show, but it's just a very comical premise because yeah. the trailer just features a child getting slapped very heavily, obviously. And then there was a lot of parodies that came out over the years. This yeah. turned into a big side conversation about the slap, but I really do want to try to find a way to watch it. And that will be my show until one week. I can't wait. Let's talk about Walensky a little bit. He becomes a major player in this section of the movie. What do you think of Walensky? Walensky, if you remember, is the detective who had the case before Bumstead took over. And he's gone a little bit off his rocker. Like crazy. Yeah, it appears he woke up during the changing that happens at midnight every tuning. week. Tuning. And this is not a, a real cause for concern for the strangers. They seem pretty okay with it. It's happened before. To be clear, the reason John Murdoch is such a problem is that he can do what they do and also woke up during the tuning. That's why he's such a real problem. But Walensky wakes up, figures out what's going on and goes crazy. His bedroom looks like a stereotypical crazy person in a noir movie's bedroom <laughs> with drawings and like red yarn everywhere. It's like the Charlie Day meme yeah. from It's Always Sunny telling Bumstead about the real nature of this place and what it is. And eventually he catches up with Murdoch. He basically tells Murdoch that he's right. He figured it all out. And then he jumps in front of a train. He's like, I figured out a way out. We knew right then and there what it was going to be. But the actor is a little hammy. <laughs> he goes big with it. You know what? I think I forgave him for it. And I can totally see what you mean. Somehow I had love for this character because I really wanted him to succeed. This situation is so fucked up and they're all fighting against all odds to even figure out what the hell's happening to them. And here's one guy who's figured it out. Let him help out the detective. Let him help people more. Keep him around. And alas, he was not destined to stick around and do more than just give a couple speeches to our protagonists and at stage left. So I was like, ah, I want more Walensky, even if he's going to be kind of a ham. I don't mind the character, to be clear. I take your point. He is necessary because if it's just this one guy, I feel like Bumstead would not buy into it. But he at least thinks he's been working with Walensky for years and is friends with him and knows him and trusts him. So right. having these two forces work on him gradually grinds him down and makes him believe. So yeah, the character totally necessary. The performance felt like it was in a different movie. It felt true to like a kind of over-the-top noir performance, but nothing else in the movie really does. So it felt out of place to me. Yeah. 
I felt like a character from a Batman movie almost. Yeah, like a you Burton know? Batman. Yeah. Like a, he's like a henchman from Batman Returns or something. His mouth opens real wide when he talks. He's a character. Yeah. You just got to watch the movie for yourself. Before we move completely on from Mr. Hand, the scene with Emma at the pier, I thought was a good scene, but maybe played differently than I would have expected. It's subtle. So to set it up, Hand now has Murdoch's set of memories. So he knows everything that Emma and John Murdoch believe to have happened to them in their history with their marriage. And so he shows up at this spot and he runs into Emma there and he starts spouting off lines that are things that John Murdoch said to Emma in his courtship of her. And it should be really creepy, but they both play it like it's fine to have these conversations. Did you get that strange? That's what I'm referring to about like Mr. Hand is almost taunting her and throwing it in her face that there's no way he could know these things. There's no logical explanation for why he knows these things. She should be having a full blown freak out, but she just, she looks a little perplexed and like maybe a little worried, but not like nervous at this like six, five bald corpse in a fucking fedora <laughs> and a trench coat buttoned all the way up spouting lines her husband who's now a wanted murderer told her like I don't know if it just I can't quite parse it maybe like the person she was supposed to be was just very level-headed and grounded and she can't quite fight against that nature because she's essentially programmed but it just didn't ring true to me she should have been running in the other direction at this point this is a, like a little dark bench by the water if anybody in a black trench coat comes up to you and starts talking to you you should be running but and then I'm like oh you know everything's a dark alley in this right. city <laughs> like that's their life so maybe that feels normal and I kind of liked the fact that Han instead of torturing her with it was actually like kind of exploring the concept of romance and enjoying it and trying to like soak it in a little bit which is like you said it's almost too sophisticated it's hard for us to parse what both these characters are thinking but it's actually kind of interesting what they end up doing I did not hate the scene I was just confused by it but it's great acting they're both good performers and it yeah. was a very creepy scene because we're worried about Emma but then at the same time we're like he's essentially like at least partially Murdoch himself so would he hurt her but he's already showing a more sadistic side with the Melissa George character so that's true who knows you ready to take us home all right let's see how this thing wraps up now united in their desire to figure out what the heck's going on Murdoch and Inspector Bumstead grab Dr. Schrieber and try to get to the mythical Shell Beach on the way Schrieber explains the stranger's experimental scheme to study people and locate the human soul unfortunately the guys hit a dead end and the strangers catch up to them killing Bumstead and taking Murdoch back to their underground lair. But Schrieber sneaks Murdoch a helpful injection of special memories, which infuse him with a lifetime of training in the use of tuning. Now with enhanced powers, Murdoch breaks loose and fights a colossal showdown against the stranger's leader, Mr. Book. Murdoch defeats Mr. Book and takes control over the entire city, bringing in sunlight and an ocean and constructing an actual shell beach. Emma's memory has been wiped, but Murdoch reintroduces himself to her new persona, Anna, and the two walk off to explore Shell Beach together. Much better place for Schrieber's monologue about the origins of the strangers right yeah. here than in the very beginning of the movie. And I like the setting with Bumstead and Murdoch and Schrieber in the boat, row, row, rowing their boat because we know the strangers don't like water. They don't remark upon it, but it's just another nice detail. The movie's very carefully made. So what did you think about the strangers lair, so to speak, which seems like a combination assembly hall slash factory? I don't know. You tell me. The strangers happen to live inside a Pink Floyd album cover. The defined 
defining feature piece of furniture that they have is a life-size replica of the cover of the Division Bell. Is that the Pink Floyd album with the two halves of a metallic face side by side? That's oh, like I think so. Yeah. Their main feature down there is this metal face and it splits in half and there's a clock in the middle, but it's really just an 80s music video set. Pretty cheesy stuff. I could see typo negative, just like banging sparks in the background and <laughs> recording a music video here. They stand in this amphitheater and the light shines up on them from below. It's very dramatic. Let's talk about Shell Beach or lack thereof because Shell Beach ain't real, my man. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. Yeah, we've been trying so long to get there because you said the middle of the movie had this other whole anxiety dream montage trying to get there and now they're back. Their car runs out of road. They get in a boat. They're rowing. They're running up. The hallways get smaller and smaller and finally they get to this poster and they're like, oh, the whole time it was just a poster. What Schreiber has been trying to tell them the entire trip. He's like, it's not real, man. There's no Shell Beach. He's freaking out. He's like, don't make me go there. And then Bumstead and Murdoch are not satisfied. They're like, fuck, we're tearing down the poster and there's a brick wall behind it. We're going through the brick wall because there must be a beach on the other side of a wall. Right. That's how beaches work. So they take, what do they get? Some hammers? There's just like sledgehammers there? Pickaxes all of a sudden are at hand. This wall goes down without a fight. I think it's made of balsa wood or something. Because in 10 seconds flat, they've just beat the shit out of this wall. And surprise, it's outer space. Yeah. So nothing on the other side. They're just in a floating city. Yeah. That's stars. Cool reveal. The special effects of Bumstead going out the window are not super awesome. That was maybe the cheaper part. They do some nice establishing shots of, okay, now you see what the edge of the city looks like from space as well. But yeah, then the strangers show up and the, I didn't even see, what are they, they wrestle for a minute and one of them and Bumstead go out the window together and they both die in the vacuum of space. Realistically presented though, like they don't die instantly or explode. They just kind of drift away. As we learned in several, we've done way too many movies where people have to go into space without <laughs> spacesuits for extended periods of time. Happens more than you think. It does happen. <laughs> so that's presented well. And that's a good reveal about the true nature of the city. We're starting to suspect it at this point for sure. We don't know where we are. We know that there's something off about this place. Treber has told us as much at this point, but we still don't know what it is. It could be a dome somewhere on Earth. It's still a nice reveal, even though we've kind of figured out the grand sweeping idea that we were taken somewhere else and studied like, you know, little rats. It's fun that he hits the literal end. He comes to the end of his search and literally you cannot go any further. There's nothing beyond this point. And that's so when, far. That's when it turns and they nab him. They somehow make him sleep. He's usually immune to it, but. It's Mr. Book that does it this time. Oh, right? okay. It was the King. King Ding Dong did it. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Book is the strongest stranger. See, that's not ageist. The elderly can still have value. Yeah. They do in this. Because Mr. Book's super old. I like their names, by the way. I like yeah. they're all like Mr. Book, Mr. Hand, Mr. Hat. I don't know if there's a Mr. Hat. That's from South Park. <laughs> and Mr. Hand, by the way, is from Fast Times. So I was laughing at that. True. Okay. So then I liked the memory montage of Kiefer Sutherland Same dropping here. himself into Murdoch's memories. For one thing, because he's not talking like a weirdo the whole time. He's talking in his regular Kiefer Sutherland voice. Oh, I didn't pick up on that. That's why it was so enjoyable. When he's like giving him the ice cream cone, he's like, you'll do great, John. Which is what I always wanted to hear as a kid. I had to wait to slow <laughs> to hear it. You're doing great now, John. Thanks, man. I say that in my normal voice, the most normal voice I can muster. Appreciate it. Yeah, good montage. And then he comes out of it and he's, it's again, very much mirroring the Matrix here. It's like when Neo finally like taps into his power as the one and beats all the agents at the end. It's that scene. And they download some skills into his brain. Like this part, although I don't know if you'd call that hard sci-fi, but it's very conceptual. You've stayed light on, oh, we inject people with memories. And then all of a sudden, like the doctor who we thought played this simple role actually concocted the most brilliant sci-fi twist in this whole 
whole thing that he's like, what if I go back through this kid's history and teach him how to do tuning every day of his life? And then he doesn't know why. It's very heady and it's very cool. And it's like, that totally works and it pays off and it gives the hero a really strong reason to be powered. Because movies where the guy is just a chosen one and it's like, yeah, you're the hero because you're the hero and fate. A prophecy or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah, those things are like kind of boring. This is, yes, he had these special powers, but somebody in their world actually did something supremely clever to unlock his powers. So I really enjoyed that part. Yeah, it's a great device. Kudos to them. Like I said, it's a very considered movie. Everything is thoughtful. I don't want to say it's logical, but you know, like they thought about it. They were like, how can we make this better than just the lazy way to go about this? And they found something. But then once he breaks himself out of his weird Braveheart enclosure, they looked like they were going to pull him apart like William Wallace in the Braveheart. It turns to a fucking beam battle. Yeah. Sorry that happened to you. One of my least favorite. And there's a blue sky beam too. For no reason. For no reason. Like the beam battle I get, they have psychic powers and then they have to battle each other with it because they're not just going to, they're not going to do Kung Fu, which I respect that they didn't take it in the yeah. Matrix direction, but it's not that movie. But the sky beam was absolutely gratuitous. The sky beam didn't mean anything. They just rode it from the basement to the sky. You know, blue sky beams probably weren't as big a thing back then. So they probably felt more novel. I don't okay. think if they made that movie today, they would do that. But beam battles were very much a thing. But it's like when you have two essentially magical characters who are not physically gifted fighters, what do you do? I understand why they did it. I just didn't like it. It makes sense. And if I can come back to my shitting on Rufus Sewell, this is where <laughs> I thought it worked in his favor. This whole time I'm like, ah, he's kind of off-putting. I'm not loving him as a hero, as a romantic lead. But as a guy who screams and has a psionic beam shooting out of his forehead, I'm like, he's perfect. <laughs> that look in his eyes when the beam is erupting from his forehead. It's the most backhanded compliment I've ever heard. <laughs> I'm like, dude, you're killing it. You're killing it with the psionic forehead beam. You found your thing. Run with it, dude. It's not going to get a lot of work with that. There's not that many movies that require forehead beams. But it was good though. He's good as a weird, creepy guy because it's hard to give a really lovable hero chosen one powers and make them not be alienating. But this guy is, he's kind of alienating just in his personality. So you give him some weird powers and you're like, okay, dude, you found your calling. I think if Rufus Sewell wanted to fight you, I would be like, yeah. <laughs> I'm praising the guy. One. I hope he can understand the intent. As a human, I'm like, oh, I don't know. But as a creepy weirdo, I'm like, yes. I love this for you. <laughs> but you called out a line that I also had called out for a different reason. Okay. Because he says to Mr. Hand, he says, you want to know what makes us human? You're not going to find it here. And then he points at his head. I was just dreading him going like, it's, it's here, buddy. And like pointing to his heart. That's where it is. And you know, that's like what he means. Right. But he doesn't actually say it. So I'm like, all right, that's a little better. I actually remembered him <laughs> pointing to his heart. And then I watched it again. I'm like, oh, did I skip it? I didn't see him point to his heart that time. But <laughs> right, he doesn't. And that was, he doesn't you know, do it. Kudos to Proyas for at least. God bless him for not doing Yeah, leaving that part out. I don't know if it would have ruined the movie, but it definitely would have been like an unintentional comedic moment. But yeah, the reason I wrote that line down was like, okay, dude, you're not the heart guy. It's good that he didn't even try it. He's schooling this creep stranger guy on- Which is also him, so- Oh yeah, what it means to be an empathetic feeling human with a soul. I'm like, dude, you haven't shown me a lot of soul. I'm sorry. No, but then we find out Emma has tragically had her memory wiped again. Poor girl. So he approaches her and she doesn't know who he is, but you get the hint that everything's going to be okay because they walk off to go explore Shell Beach together. And you thought this was kind of creepy. Once again, you think anything Rufus Sewell does is creepy. Seems to be the running theme here. I thought I was done torching the guy, but let me come at you for the very final scene of the movie. This girl doesn't know who she is, what the heck she's doing. She walks out on this pier that didn't exist 10 seconds ago. Who knows how she got there so fast? He just built it. Anyway, she's out there looking at the ocean. He walks up behind her and he didn't get his memory wiped. He knows that he had a fake marriage with her and that he wants to get with her again, but he's acting all innocent. He's like, do you know if Shell Beach is around here? Like he didn't just fucking create it 10 seconds ago. Anyway, I thought it was a little 
little creepy. Like they could have come up with a way to make their bouncing into each other feel more organic, but it, it felt a little stiff to me. It's like God going up to Adam and Eve. Like, do you guys know where I could find apples? I've been <laughs> yeah. really hungry for an apple. Yeah, you kind of ruined the ending for me. I'm sorry. That's a little, it's a little dark, but I don't know. I bought the romance between them and I was kind of rooting for them by the end. I hear you. There's movies where the leading lady totally wins me over and the movie can be terrible. And I'm like, that was the most romantic scene I ever saw. So I don't want to accuse you of that right now, but- No, that's totally what happened. Come on. <laughs> that might have been how Jennifer Connelly affects you. She's terrific, but she didn't have that kind of power over me in this film. And so Rufus Sewell was enough to knock me out of it. That's fair. She's not playing the most dynamic character, like we mentioned. She's a little muted by design here. I can understand that. But like, it wasn't just her though. I was rooting for their romance. I bought into it for whatever reason. That yeah. would be just me being a romantic at heart. I don't know. And I, lo I love it for story reasons though. It's kind of treacly, but it's nice that the aliens were like trying to study humans and they just were never going to understand love. It's something magical and beyond all understanding. And these two humans get to go off and experience it now. So that's Dark City. We both liked it. Maybe me a little more, but you came around. And I think we both maybe learned a little more about the movie just through talking it out with each other, which is always a fun kind of realization that there's stuff we didn't both didn't realize. Yeah, I like it 25% more now because I have a new perspective on the Jennifer Connelly song sections. Like it's got that much more respect for it. But the, the movie obviously failed. We blame Titanic a lot for it, but not to mention it was released in February, which is no longer really considered a dumping ground for bad movies. But back then it kind of was. Uh -huh. Studios used it to get movies off the books that they didn't think were going to be hits. Also, I implore you all to go watch the trailer for this movie because it is truly confounding. There's not a single line of dialogue in the trailer. I understand it's a mysterious movie and you want to maintain the mystery, but all they do is throw two minutes of eerie, foreboding clips from the movie at you with no context. There's text on the screen. I'm like, why didn't they get the trailer guy to read the text at least to give it some life? It feels very like an afterthought. It seems cheap. It almost literally says in a world on the screen, but no one reads it to you. Like, <laughs> just read the script. Don't print it on the screen. Just say the thing. It's the thing. <laughs> so it's not hard to figure out why this movie failed to make money. It's a difficult concept to market because like we said, it's very heady. It's very opaque. It doesn't have a ton of name recognition. Jennifer Connelly was certainly the biggest star in it when it came out, but leading man is basically unknown at that point. William Hurt has never been able to open a movie on his name. Kiefer Sutherland couldn't either. He's never really been a movie star. He's been a TV star, certainly for decades. Right. So Titanic, bad marketing, hard movie to explain to people in two minutes or whatever it takes to make a trailer. No big A-list stars. It's not one-on-one -on -one we need to spend a ton of time on trying no. to figure out what happens. But do you want to hear what happened to the people involved in it after this? Yeah, I hope they got to finally go to the beach. I bet some of them did. <laughs> Let's talk about Proyas because Proyas has had a really interesting career. He made The Crow in Dark City. And I think sci-fi fanboys were like, this is our dude. The way we talk about Alex Garland today, I feel like Alex Proyas was that guy after Dark City came out. Then he made Garage Days, which is a 2002 comedy drama. I cannot believe he made a comedy drama. I've never heard of it. Never seen a poster. It got mixed reviews and it bombed hard. So okay. didn't seem like it was in his wheelhouse. Then he made iRobot, which if you remember was yeah. the Isaac Asimov adaptation starring Will Smith and a very young Shia LaBeouf. Oh, okay. That got pretty bad reviews. Not bad. Mixed. Right around, hovered around the 50% on Rotten Tomatoes to this day. It was probably a bit of a disappointment commercially for a 2004 Will Smith big budget sci-fi movie. Ended up making about $350 million worldwide, which is not a failure by any means. It probably made a little bit of money, but it wasn't a, a huge hit. Yeah. You remember that one? I do. I remember that it was a movie that made a splash and it had that sort of mixed review vibe to it. Like a lot of those Will Smith sci-fi movies from that era did. You know, I Am Legend. There was a lot of hope for it, especially with its origins being something really meaningful sci-fi wise. And then people are like, it's not that. It's kind of didn't satisfy anyone too much. But I, I remember watching it and pretty much enjoying it. Do you know who 
Pool that wrote the screenplay. No. My least favorite screenwriter. Uh-oh. Kiva Goldsman. And his team of monkeys. <laughs> yeah. He's a recurring villain for you on this He pod. sure is. So after that, he made Knowing, which we talked about a little bit off mic recently. A movie I was very excited for. Knowing has a great trailer, if you want to see like an okay. example of a kind of a sci-fi movie with a difficult... Con- I guess that concept's a little more straightforward, but great fucking trailer. I was very excited for it. I saw Knowing in the theater. And Knowing was a financial hit. It got mixed reviews again, but I feel like if the ending was different, it would have gotten very positive reviews. It really felt like a return to form for him for the two thirds. And then it just shits the bed at the end. It's too bad. But I still recommend it's still worth watching. It's very well done most of the way. And it's got Nick Cage right before he kind of started taking any role he could get. So he still was like passionate about the movies he was in. That's not to besmirch him and those movies he made for a paycheck because he still gives his all in those. But yeah, this is slightly elevated material from like Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance or whatever. Sure. Then a movie we will have to cover is Gods of Egypt. (laughs) Okay. That is a huge piece of shit that lost a ton of money. Lost $90 million, just barely missed out on the $100 million club. Somehow has Chadwick Boseman in it. Just a bad movie. I have seen it once. I'll see it again for you folks if I have to. He hasn't made any movies since then, any feature length movies anyway. But in August of 2021, he announced that he's developing a new video platform called Vidiverse for independent filmmakers as an alternative to YouTube to host their short or feature length movies. And he's been making short films recently, including Mask of the Evil Apparition in 2021, which is apparently set in the Dark City universe. Well, now we got to watch that. Can we see that? Or do we have to sign up for Vidiverse? It's got good reviews. How do you see it? Oh, it's on Vidiverse. Okay, so I guess Vidiverse did happen. You have to subscribe to watch it. Maybe I could find it somewhere else. Oh. All right, so let's talk about the screenwriters because there were some big name screenwriters on this movie too. There were. I'm sure you know the name David S. Goyer. He is a heavy hitter in the comic book screenwriting. Yeah, uh, I looked him game. up. I'm like, wow, he goes right down the list. Yeah, see he's done them all. Comic. Yeah. He had mostly written like schlock before this. A Kickboxer 2, The Crow, City of Angels, a terrible sequel with a great soundtrack. But then now he's like the comic book guy. He wrote all three Blades and directed the third one, which is the worst one, but a lot of that seemed kind of out of his hands if you read up on the making of Blade Trinity. Quite a chaotic production. Patton Oswalt has spoken about it on stage at oh, length, okay. and it's pretty entertaining. And then he worked on all three Chris Nolan Batman movies, generally regarded as pretty good ones. Yeah. Uh, and then he wrote Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. I forgot that when I brought that up as oh, okay. a bad Nick Cage movie, but he did write that one. He wrote Man of Steel, BVS Dawn of Justice, Terminator Dark Fate. So I'd say he's got a spotty record with writing. It's a little up and down. But it's big stuff. Like, he's certainly getting the call. Hollywood keeps calling him back and saying, write us another one. He also is the creator, writer, and occasional director for Apple TV plus sci-fi show Foundation, which I have not watched, but looked interesting. Yeah, I sampled it. It was somewhat dry, lofty, elevated. He's aiming high, maybe not quite reaching it. Then there was Lem Dobbs is the other writer on this movie. Lem Dobbs is a favorite of mine because he has worked on some movies with my favorite director, Steven Soderbergh. Some of my favorite Soderbergh movies like Kafka, The Limey. Haywire. Cool. He also did work on Romancing the Stone and The Score, All right. which are other good movies. But then he's done his fair share of cat money jobs, let's say, like SWAT, terrible Colin Farrell and Samuel L. Jackson movie, and uh, Gotti, starring John Travolta. Wow. Directed okay. by E from Entourage. I did not remember that. He wrote that one, or he worked on the screenplay. A lot of these have multiple writers. Rufus Sewell has worked steadily. Like we mentioned, he's been a bad guy in a lot of stuff, like A Knight's Tale, Legend of Zorro, The Illusionist, The Father. Well, he wasn't really a villain in The Father. He was an old 
I know a movie you watched recently. Oh, yeah. Now that you know that, can you picture him in that movie? I can picture his worried face, but I'm not sure if it wasn't from Shell Beach and not Old Beach. The beach that makes you shell. <laughs> he likes beaches. What can I say? Yeah, he's a beach movie guy. Uh, he's also done some shows, The Man in the High Castle, which I watched like a season and a half of. It was okay. pretty good, but I don't know. It never took that step to become great. And 11th Hour he was on, and he'll be in an upcoming show called Jigsaw, which is not about the guy from Saw. Oh, okay. It is apparently a heist series with a great cast. Giancarlo Esposito, Esposito, yeah. Paz Vega, okay. our girl from Spanglish, upcoming episode. Oh, nice. Love Paz Vega. Tati Gabriel, Rosaline Elbay, Peter Mark Kendall, Jay Courtney. He's been pretty good on the terminal list. I'm not done yet, but right. I've been enjoying him there. Yeah. And Naisha Noor. You had me at High Series starring Giancarlo Esposito and Paz Vega. It sounds great. I'm totally going to check that, that out. That does sound cool. I'm going to give Sewell another chance. I just decided. I mean, he might be the bad guy, so that would be perfect for you. Yeah. And maybe and a beam. Be a creepy weirdo. He'll be a creep, and maybe a beam will come out of his forehead and bust open a safe. Maybe. Maybe. I don't need to catch anyone up on Jennifer Connelly. She's one of our most celebrated actors. Oh. She won an Oscar for A Beautiful Mind. She works all the time. She was just in Top Gun Maverick, one of the biggest movies the last few years. I know. Uh, I can't wait to see her in that. She's very winning in it. And it's almost like the polar opposite of this performance. She's got a lot of warmth. Cool. In it. Not that's a bad thing about her performance here. She's playing the role as it was meant to be. But yeah. Kiefer Sutherland maybe hasn't had the career that was expected of him. He was kind of pegged as the next big thing, but I think he's had some demons right. that have kept him from working working on super high profile stuff, but he had a show that lasted a while. Designated Survivor, didn't watch it, but it was, it seemed to get decent ratings and reviews and it lasted four or five seasons, I think. So that's good work if you can get it. Yeah. And he came back as Jack Bauer in the 2010s for a little while, for a season. Are you a 24 guy? I did one full season, maybe two of it. I had a little run in with 24. Yeah, me too. I watched maybe the first two and then I just kind of tapered off. It's a good concept, but I think by the time I watched it, it didn't feel groundbreaking anymore because... Network TV had kind of gone out of vogue by then, and it was all about premium cable stuff and real gritty, realistic storytelling, and 24 just felt a little... It was a network show. Yeah, it was. I think it, was it just wasn't my taste at the time. It was fun. I did it with some friends of mine looped me in for the one full season that I did. We did it as a get-together group watch thing, and it was fun for that because it was a show that had that, that pace good. and that action that made it fun to soak up in a gang. I could totally see that helping it. All right, so that is what we have for Dark City. Next week, we're doing something a little more recent. We've been stuck in the 90s lately. We did a 90s run, for sure accidentally. It wasn't a themed yeah. month or anything. Uh, I mean, we could say it is. Now we can. Why not? No, we're going to the 2019. So pretty recent. We're doing The Kitchen. If you remember this movie with Melissa McCarthy, Elizabeth Moss, Tiffany Haddish, play wives of gangsters in the Hell's Kitchen mob that get locked up and then they kind of have to step in and, and take over for them. I'm very interested in that area and that place and time because I read a book called The Westies when I was way too young to read a book called The Westies okay. about the Hell's Kitchen Irish mob, particularly Mickey Feather Stone and Jimmy Coonan, and it was horrifically violent. It's not a fictional book. It's a true story. Uh, okay. You know, this seems to take place in that neighborhood around that time. So I'm curious about it. I never did see it. I had grand designs of going to see it in the theater, and then the review started coming out, and I said, you know what? Never mind. Yeah, I don't know anything about this movie. I'm trying to orient myself, because I think I remember being in the Broadway theater area and realizing that Hell's Kitchen is not too many blocks from there. Is that, is that true? No, it's not far from the theater district at all. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to as Clinton now okay. as well. It's the name they've adapted that's a little less ominous. Less hell. <laughs> in the name. But no, I've been to Hell's Kitchen semi recently. Me and my friend Craig went and had a plate of nachos during a nacho crawl there. Oh, nice. Uh, they had chorizo on them and they were pretty good. Yeah, I do nacho crawls for the listeners who don't know that. Pick 10, 15 nacho places and go to a city and eat all their nachos. It can't be nearly as scary anymore if you can go there and safely enjoy nachos. There are no scary neighborhoods in Manhattan now. Are you crazy? Like, there's no way. It's too fucking expensive. <laughs> no Even like, you know, like be scary. Lower East Side, Alphabet City, the Bowery, those used to be like the scary parts of the city when I was young. But uh -huh. New York City's kind of 
kind of homogenous right now. At least Manhattan is. It all kind of feels like one big neighborhood at this point. Well, we're going to get to see a different side of it in the kitchen. Stay tuned for that, folks. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please give us a rating, write us a review, subscribe to the pod. If you're a first time listener, we would appreciate it. That'd be nice. Follow us on Twitter, get updates about future episodes or just random jokes about movies and TV. We're at Pod on Twitter. We have fun. You can email us. We've been getting emails, which is very exciting. At BlastZonePod at gmail.com. Love hearing from you guys. We do. Ian, did you have anything to say before we sign off? Or No, I'm going to go wipe my memory and start again tomorrow. See if I can have a better life this time. Sounds like a plan. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time in the Blast Zone. See you next time in the Blast Zone. The Blast Zone.